0: There is a tendency for the microphones to be a little hot when we change up technology. There's a tendency to want to dress up the uniqueness that makes up our relationships with different people in our lives. People are unique, and so are our relationships. At least, that's how we would like to look at our relationships. The truth is, though, that there are more common threads in the type of relationship dynamics that we have with people. When we describe familial relationships, there's a construct or a framework that holds these kinds of things together. What makes a familial relationship a familial relationship? I suppose the fact that there is nothing that can be done to make that relationship go away. Familial relationships you are stuck with. My mom is my mom, no matter what. My dad is my dad, no matter what. My brothers are my brothers, no matter what. There's nothing we can do to change that. The same type of framework goes and is communicated elsewhere in our lives. What makes a working relationship a working relationship? Unless someone leaves a position or that working relationship is is changed because of a restructure or you still have co-workers and there's nothing that you can do to change that. My boss is my boss no matter what. My employees, my employees, no matter what. Listen, I don't want to downplay that there are a certain set of unique and special qualities to every personal relationship that a person has. However... I also want to draw our attention to the fact that our attempt to make everything unique, the way in which we think about relationships, has been changed. Relationships are, in today's world, a dissolvable entity. Friends can no longer be friends. Relatives can disassociate with their heritage. We can even see the same type of concept within the church, especially within our seeker-sensitive culture that attempts to acquiesce to a consumeristic preference of churchgoers. This matter of uh, the dynamic and the way that we look at relationships or the way that we are connected with others has a consequence. It raises a problem in how we actually are relating to one another. Rather than being ourselves and allowing ourselves to be authentic with the people that we live and do life with, with our families, with our colleagues, with our co-workers and even our friends, even our church members... We find ourselves pandering to others to maintain their friendships, family connections, and even community involvement. At a personal level, it isn't good for individuals to not have close relationships. Consider for a moment, before we begin this morning, God's own observation throughout creation. The entire account of Genesis, when God created the world, He says, it is good, it is good, it is good, Until Genesis two eighteen, for the first time, God says it is not good for man to be alone. Not today. That's all right, we don't need it. Consider that before sin, before fallenness, God had identified that it was not good for man to be alone. He made us to be relational creatures. We need community. How will we ever have community when the very vehicle that makes that possible, our relationship with one another, is vulnerable and, in fact, even a commodity, a usable resource, a disposable part of life? I said this raises the problem in consequence to the quality of our lives, but moreover, it causes a problem in our obedience as Christians. This way of living isn't just bad for us on a personal level, it is sinful. The Bible's example of our relationships is one of unmeasured, unexplainable commitment. This morning, as we celebrate our mothers, we're reminded that a mother's love is not hinged on conditions or expectations. Sure. My mom's here this morning, and you guys are all free to ask her about it. I've disappointed her. I've let her down. But never for a moment, and I can say this with confidence, has my mother's love been absent towards me. Her love has no measure As we begin this morning drilling down into these different types of relationships that we can have, we've been going through a study of the book of Ephesians, and we've made it all the way to Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul actually places significant importance on these different relationships between husbands and wives, co-workers, employees and employers, children and their parents, all of these different things. We begin to see what's hinging all of these things together, the framework that's holding all of these things together, that makes them not as unique as we'd like them to be is an unmerited commitment because these things are not exchangeable. It is a picture not just of an unexchangeable love from God towards his children, but a picture of his church's unmeasured love towards him when we surrender to everything that he has done for us. You'll remember that when we returned to our study of Ephesians two weeks ago, we began in chapter 5 looking at what it means to speak with others. The walk with others. And now we consider what does it mean to pursue God with others. If you haven't been here, I'll remind you that Paul's exhortations so far have been in Ephesians 5 verse 10 to try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Then in Ephesians 5, 17, he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. It's from these imperatives that we pick up in our text this morning. And I'll invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be reading from verses 18 through 21. But before we read, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come before you as God's chosen people. God, thank you for bringing us together this morning and giving us the ability to worship you, for calling us out of of darkness and into light. Lord, as we approach your word, we do so humbly. I know that the morning has been chaotic. We had to get dressed. We had to get in the car. We had to orchestrate our families getting ready and everything that goes along with that. So God, I thank you for the grace that has brought us here. But now, as we prepare to worship You, Lord, I come to You and ask that You would help prepare me for such worship. That I would set aside the frantic mourning. That I would come to You with my focus only on You. God, as I turn to Your Word, I pray that You would open the eyes of my heart. That I would be able to behold the awesome truth in Your law. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, The imperative in our text this morning is not actually do not get drunk with wine, but it comes after that in saying, be filled with the Spirit. And the question that we have to consider if we're going to understand this text at all is, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? We need to understand that this word filled means in order to understand what Paul is Instructing us to do. And not just Paul, I'll remind us, this may be a man riding, but he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, and therefore this is the inspired, breathed out word of God, or as Second Timothy puts it, Deo numos, God breathed word, inerrant and authoritative for all things pertaining pertaining to faith and to life. Here, the Greek word for fill that Paul actually uses, palareo, does not mean to fill a cup. Does not mean to fill a cup. It doesn't mean to make something more full in regard to its contents. Rather, this word is referring to um, a filling that would be more like to somebody filling an office. There's an office that I have been given within the church. I've been called as the pastor, and so I have to fill this pastoral office, which means I'm responsible not just to what this office is supposed to do, accountable not just to those who have given authority to this office, but I also am required by scriptural requirements to behave in a way that is according to what this office should behave as. To fill an office means that I should fill all of those responsibilities. To be filled with the Spirit, as Paul is saying then, is to act like believers. The way that believers are supposed to act. This is the encouragement that He's given us. We know with certainty that this isn't the kind of filling that comes about when we're filling a cup because Paul's already told us in Ephesians 4 that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Sealed. Now, consider for a moment what it means for something to be sealed. If something's sealed, nothing more is getting in, nothing more is getting out. At the moment of salvation, when we're made new creations in Christ, when we are saved, the believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is sure and secure. It's absolute. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to go anywhere. In fact, if we're sealed, we know that we cannot have more Holy Spirit inside of us than we already have because it's already been given to us as a deposit and testimony of our own salvation. Looking at this word, reo" that Paul uses to say that we have been made new creations and that we are to be filled with the Spirit in contrast to being drunk with wine, I'll make a couple of other notes and for those of you here this morning, I'll warn you, I'm not normally this nerdy outwardly. But this happens every single week when I get a look at the Bible. And this is interesting, and so I wanted to share it with you. The word palo conjugated here by Paul, is in the plural tense. That tells us something. Being filled with the Spirit is not a commandment given to individuals or a certain select few within the church, but that it's given to every believer. To be filled is something that all of God's people are supposed to represent. To be filled. Still, we're trying to figure out what that means. Second, I'll say that paloreo conjugated here is in the present tense. It's not like I was sealed at the moment of salvation, but I am being filled presently. This is something that continually takes place in a Christian's life. To be filled. Third conjugated in a passive tense. What in the world does that mean? Well, this is remarkable. There's churches today that will tell believers that in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not only is it necessary for them to come in here preaching, but in such a way that they're supposed to be worked up into a spiritual frenzy so that they can experience what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I've already pointed out that this is contradictory to what Paul writes in Ephesians 4 when he says we've been sealed. What does it mean that this is passive? It means you don't work yourself up to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Rather, by being passive, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Fill. Fill. If you like, to be filled is to be made complete to be made complete. It's like an Oreo cookie. If you take the cream out of the middle, it is no longer an Oreo cookie. It is a very nasty brown chocolate wafer. (laughs) Michelle would disagree with me. From time to time when we get Oreo cookies, I'll go in the pantry excited to enjoy a treat and I will find a clump of that white cream uh, collected as she's taken it out, scraped it off, and thrown it in uh, to the container so that she can eat the nasty brown chocolate wafers. (laughs) Poor Michelle. She doesn't know what a complete cookie tastes like. (laughs) For Christians to be filled just like an Oreo cookie is to be made complete, whole, the way that we originally designed. It takes no argument or no example from Scripture. The reality that we have before us is that God designed us and God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't have accidents. He doesn't make travesties. And so when God created us, when He formed the world, when we go back to this Genesis creation that we mentioned in our introduction this morning, we find God at the work making something perfect and beautiful. Does it need any argument to point out that that perfect and beautiful picture doesn't exist in our world today? The perfect image of God has been marred. It has been distorted. It has been twisted. But, my friends and loved ones, I tell you this morning, it has not been destroyed. God's promise to believers when He encourages us here to say be filled with the Spirit is to be made complete, to be made the way that God designed us to be, not so that we can reach some sort of personal exaltation for ourselves, but rather so that we can enjoy all of the blessings of His perfect design, filled like an Oreo cookie. This is made even more apparent by the contrast that Paul gives us here. He says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. These phrases, if you look in your Bible this morning, are parallel. They're actually explaining one another. A person who is drunk with wine has given up some control in themselves. Their self-control has been, gone, has been taken away from them. They act in a debaucherous way. To be drunk with wine... Paul says, is debauchery. Illustrated by the fact that a, a drunk person loses a e- loss of control. Even the church, whenever they were first filled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, those who were around them accused them of being drunk. These parallel passages and parallel phrases and sentence structure here in Ephesians 5.18 is pointing to the relationship between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. On one hand, drunk with wine is a loss of control or inhibition. Being filled with the Spirit is giving oneself over in the same way to the control of the Spirit in our lives. These are parallel pictures so then we should understand being filled with the Holy Spirit as a command to be controlled and fully submissive to the Spirit of God inside of you. The key to understanding what Paul is writing is in understanding his key purpose in writing. Well, under often mind, we often undermine God's Word by saying that the Christian life is not simply a list of do's and don'ts. While this saying is true, because Christianity is far more than that, We should be careful to realize that a characteristic of any true born-again believer is the prompting and the encouragement to submit to God's will, to be filled with the Spirit. Those who would say that they like the morality and religion of all of these things, maybe even the universality of goodness and wrongness, but fail to submit to God, these people that would say, I like the teachings of this Jesus of Nazareth, but I would not call him Lord of my life or King of all. Fail to know the true perfect design of God. We cannot work up this being filled. It isn't something that we can motivate ourselves into. It is not something that can take place by our personal effort. It's not something that preaching accomplishes through motivational, uh, lectionary. It it, it is something that is passive, as we've already described in the conjugation that Paul gives us. It takes place when we submit to God's will. In our lives, preaching is not a coaching, as some would lead us to believe. The proclamation of scripture is not an admonition to morality. The gathering of God's people to hear the word read and expounded is based fundamentally on the continual reaffirmation of being submissive to the way that God works in our lives. Stuart, if you wouldn't mind going to the next slide, I want you guys to catch this. Being filled with the Spirit is so integral to being a Christian, it defines what Christian community looks like. Mark Denver said, If community in your local church is not dependent on God's supernatural Spirit for its lifeblood, it is not evidently supernatural. The community that we are after when we describe the local church, the work of the local church, is based on this communal and corporate submission to God's will in our lives. It is a yielding to the lifeblood that actually allows the church to go on. It's not something that we create. It's not something that we program. It's something that transcends what is observable in our world going on. Paul moves that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he describes it for us. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart. making a melody to the Lord with our heart. If you wouldn't mind, turn with me for a second to Acts chapter 2 so we could see what it looked like originally when the church was first filled with the Holy Spirit. To find the description of what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus described as the Comforter, came upon the church. In Acts chapter 2, From time to time, Michelle accuses me of yelling at her whenever I preach, and if I have to, I'll just take the microphone and yell at everybody. (laughs) All right, the first picture that we see of the Holy Spirit descending upon the church is found in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost that we've referred to. Here, after the uh, great gifts have been given to the apostles and amazing things have happened, the... um, Disciples have been preaching to the crowds, and something remarkable has happened. Even though there was a congregation of people from all sorts of different backgrounds who spoke different languages, they were all able to understand what the disciples were saying in their own native language. They were able to comprehend it. The people... In response, the crowds who are observing this, say in Acts 2.12, in response to the Spirit enabling believers to proclaim God's truth to the people in different language backgrounds and everyone understanding it simultaneously, says that all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mockingly said, They are filled with new wine. Peter addresses the people in the crowds. If you jump down to verse 15, he says that the people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, making reference to these miraculous things that have been taking place. The church's behavior was such that the people literally thought that they were drunk, not just in their speech, for that was something to marvel at that was something amazing that people were able to understand what was going on. The fact that people could understand the language simultaneously from different language backgrounds was amazing. Notice how this is different than the type of babbling that some have attributed speaking to tongues to. There's a purpose, and every time that God uses spiritual gifts, there is a purpose behind it. It is in the sense that it is taking and advancing His Word. It's not babbling nonsense. Rather, it's communicating what the gospel has always said. Those who would take this picture of debauchery and attribute it to being filled with the Spirit were severely misguided. There must have been something else in their behavior akin to drunkenness that the crowds were making reference to or regarding. I don't think it was language. It certainly wasn't babbling because they were able to be comprehended. Rather, something else must have been there in observation for the crowds to make these notes. I doubt that the saints were stumbling around themselves in a disorderly fashion. Again, that would be contradictory to the full counsel of God, as Paul also writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14.40, that as a command to the church, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And so to say that maybe they were stumbling around or anything like this is absolute nonsense. The way that they were behaving would have been in accordance with God's will. Therefore, it would have been in order. It would have been taking good shape. So then, again, I ask, what was it in their behavior that made the crowds think they were drunk? While it's true that for every jubilant drunk, there is also an angry and irrational drunk, I believe framing the account of Acts made by Dr. Luke and the Council of Paul to the church in Corinth and in our text this morning to Ephesus and throughout other epistles that what may have been regarded to the crowds as drunkenness was their overwhelming and unexplainable joy. Paul writes... Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is truly a picture of uncanny Christian joy. That when we address one another, there would be songs, hymns, spiritual songs. Songs of encouragement, lifting us up, that in doing so, within our heart, there would be a melody taking shape. Lifting up to God is pleasing, that the melody within our heart would glorify He who holds all things together. As we said, verse 17 and 18 are parallel phrases structurally. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. These two phrases together explain and expound on the meaning of the other. Do not be controlled by the Spirit, rather be sober-minded and filled with that that is controlled by the Spirit now within you, sealed at the moment of salvation. So, the explanation that we see in these parallels is already there for us. To be drunk with wine is described as debauchery. To be filled with the Spirit is to address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord within your heart, to be filled with the Spirit. So what is this Christian joy that we're after, that we're looking at? This uncontrollably contagious and alluring Christian joy. It is the mark of the Spirit controlling the Christian. Christian joy, we could could talk about joy all day long. And uh, we could look at the Bible for definitions of joy and try to understand how to make it take shape in our lives and everything else, but uh, joy is tough. It's not just being happy. It's, we're told by James to count it all joy when we fall in ver- into various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience. Christian joy exists despite circumstances in our life. And it's also not just a blissful ignorance to the things around us. Paul writes to Rome, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in you through hope. See, Christian joy is based in what we already know. To actually live in joy is to, to base our lives, even the circumstances, the frameworks of what we have, in what we already know that the Spirit is at work within us based in what we already know, that we have been saved, that we have been changed, that the world is crumbling around us, that the days are evil as Paul has written in Ephesians 5, but that there is hope for all who would place their faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world. Remember that such a joy-filled person cannot be motivated into such a state. We cannot work ourselves up into experiencing such joy. This is a result and definition, characteristic if you like, of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That we would exhibit such an undeniable, unexplainable, despite circumstances, joy. This is a passive verb, remember. Consider what we rob ourselves of when we view Paul's list of do's and don'ts as purely a moral issue that we are supposed to approach. When writing on this issue, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, There are those who conceive of the gospel as morality only. Their view of themselves is that they do not need forgiveness. Instead, they desire an exalted way of life. Stuart, will you hit the, the next button there? This new way of life given to us is something so remarkable. Christians who are experiencing this joy are not actually desiring an exalted way of life. This is something we experience simply by allowing ourselves to be controlled by God within us. This is what happens as a result of truly surrendering our lives. Actually saying, instead of just calling Jesus a moral teacher, I will call Him Lord and I will call Him King. The negative commands that we find in Ephesians 5, do not be foolish, but be wise, do not waste the day, but make the most of it, do not be drunk, but be filled, are not commands that are here to rob the Christian of any sort of happiness or fun or a good time. They're here to point us towards experiencing true wholeness, completeness, just like the Oreo cookie we were describing earlier. These commands are not to rob us of a good time. Rather, they're to point us to ultimate fulfillment. Something bigger and better than everything that we already have. Naturally, thankfulness, when we are filled with such joy, comes about. And that's exactly where Paul moves next. He says, making melody within your heart, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 20. This morning... I've already been really nerdy and pulled out the Greek. I have to be nerdy one more time to explain what the text is saying, and this is the easiest way for me to do it, I promise. When we look at the sentence structure, what Paul is saying... um, Well, let me back up. I think we're all familiar with the fact that Paul is very good at using very complicated sentence structures. Sometimes it's a bit difficult to follow one of the things that Paul does, that once we see it, it actually makes it easier to understand and comprehend what he's saying, is he uses what's called an appositive phrase. Now, I say that word not to scare anyone, um, because you already use it all of the time. And a positive phrase is simply a phrase in a sentence that elaborates. It acts as an adjective. It acts as a descriptor or a modifier for something that goes before it. Paul uses this literary tool... In a positive phrase, whenever he's describing what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That he's addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Those are a modifier describing what being filled with the Spirit looks like. Another sentence, just for an example, my brother Dawson is well. Dawson describes my brother so that you know which brother I'm talking about. It gives us specificity. It gives us a description and it elaborates. We've already looked at what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts. The next positive phrase is what we just looked at, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the next slide, what's going on here is each of these phrases are rolling up to the things that they are describing. Do not be drunk. Because that's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, which looks like addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making a melody to the Lord within your heart. What does it look like to make a melody in your heart? This week, as I looked at this text and I was preparing and I was studying, I, am, I go crazy when I come across... These kinds of phrases that are so obscure, that have no grounding, and I think, how in the world am I supposed to apply this to my life, let alone instruct others to apply it to their life? Praise God. He gave us this positive phrase. What does it look like to make a melody within your heart to give thanks always and for everything to the Father through the Son? He gives us the description right here. Naturally, when we're filled with the Spirit and living in such a joy-filled state, there is an air of thankfulness because despite circumstances, despite bills that keep coming in, despite uh, trials and hardships that families might undergo, despite conflict and war in our world, despite people fighting over fundamental rights to life in our world, I know that God has chosen me. That He has adopted me as His Son. That He regards me as loved. And that the same hope of my salvation, the sure fact that when the day of judgment comes, He will welcome me into His family because I am in Christ and He is in me. Because of that, I know I will have glory. I can be thankful in all things because throughout everything, God has given me assurance. Thankfulness in all things prompts joy, just as joy prompts thankfulness. A few weeks ago, we've been going through the study of Ephesians and it's taken some time to make it all the way to chapter 5. So we decided to take a little bit of a break and we studied Psalm 42, asking ourselves, how is it possible that Christians can seek God even in their despair? The application that we took away from that was simply that through despair, we can rest in the assurance that God has given us a glory in the future, that He is purifying us in the moment, that things are happening in our lives if we would just seek Him, if we would be thankful for the trials in our lives because it is through those depths we are able to experience the depth of God's love. If we would make ourselves aware of His presence in our trials, we would have joy at every moment in our lives. Awareness is the key ingredient to being controlled by the Spirit. Now, I say key ingredient, obviously before you can even get started down this road, you have to be saved. You have to know Christ as your Savior. That's the prerequisite for being filled with the Spirit. But then, once sealed, how are you going to be controlled? By being aware of God's presence in our lives through everything. Everything. When we are aware, we naturally are in a state of thanking God. When we are aware, we are naturally understanding what the will of God is. These are the imperatives that we've already studied in Ephesians 5. To understand what the will of God is. To discern what is pleasing to the Lord. When we are aware of His presence in our lives, drawing our attention and focus to His presence, we are constantly seeking His will, discerning what is pleasing to Him. Prior to returning to Ephesians, the study of Psalm 42 has prepared us to consider what it means to seek God in everything. The key to live in a state of reminding ourselves of God's presence, even in the silence. There wasn't a break from Ephesians without a purpose. God's given us greater insight to what Paul is writing here. Being filled is our awareness of God with us, plus... Our submission to Him. By thanking Him always and for everything, we naturally stir up a pleasing melody within our hearts. This is how God created us to have a relationship with Him. I mentioned this morning this perfect design that God has given us, creating us in His perfect design because He's a perfect God. Being filled, allowing ourselves to be controlled, Being submissive to Him is the picture of true Christian joy. By thanking Him always and for everything, we naturally stir up the pleasing melody of our heart. And this is how God created us to live. This is not just how He created us to live as individuals, though. This is how He created us to live in community. How He created us to live in community. It's not enough that we would do all of this on our own or as individuals, but we're supposed to address one another in psalms and hymns. This is a picture of what it means not to pursue God as an individual in loneliness. This is a picture of pursuing God in community. If anyone spends any time understanding sin, the real heartache around sin is that a person wrapped up in it cannot see their own sinfulness. Human pride prevents us from seeing our own sinfulness. But when somebody is singing songs and hymns, when somebody is making a joyous melody within their heart to God... Friends, I, I, I was truly honored this week to, to give away a, 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 some furniture that was in our garage to a family that recently experienced a, a house fire. I was blown away. By this woman that has lost her house and pretty much all of the things that were in her house. How joy filled she was. Just exuberant. She even remarked, and I I wonder if she's not going to crash when things settle down, to, to be totally honest, but the joy that was in her was remarkable. It was personally convicting when I have nothing like that going on and I am not making such melodies to the Lord. The light of God's love in an individual's life when they submit to the authority of scripture, submit to the authority of the church, they live in community with one another, pushes us onward exposing sin that is trapped in our life, helping us to see that there is a thankfulness that has gone from my way of living. I need people in my life to point me towards such thankfulness. Praise God for others who give us an example of love that is not based on expectations or performance, but gives us an understanding of immeasurable love. The last phrase in this sentence, and I'm actually done being nerdy. We're not going to look at sentence structures or positive phrases or original languages anymore this morning. Verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is a bad word in our world today. We talk about submitting to authority and we see no picture of it in our lives. To submit to anyone is to uh, be weak. But it is fundamentally the basis for every Christian relationship that we have. Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, he describes wives and husbands, children and parents, bondservants and masters. And then he goes on to finally describe spiritual warfare at the end of chapter 6. In every relationship that we look at, though, this air of submission is at core. The Christian who comes, or or those who think that they're a Christian, who come to God, or is this Jesus of Nazareth, looking for some moral imperative, looking for some way of an exalted life, who do not say that this book is authoritative, are actually running away from living the way that God has called them to live. You say you want an exalted way of life, and I started this morning by saying that God promises you exactly that. Exactly that. By pursuing God in community, he promises to make us full like an Oreo cookie. But it comes about by submitting to one another. This isn't something we do on our own, but it's something that we do out of reverence for Christ. This instruction in our text, first and foremost, to our relationships that form within the church, but it is always an example of our submission to Jesus as Lord. It plays out in marriage, in work relationships, in parental relationships, so on and so forth. In every relationship, we should, out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. It is modeled after the Christian submission to call Jesus as Lord. To no longer consider oneself wise in pursuit of our own moral compass, we are born with a sense of what is right and wrong. Rather, to despite doubt, to despite personal conflict, to stand in opposition to our personal preferences. And to yield to the authority of Scripture gives us an absolute. Because where there is rebellion, we find those who do not call Jesus king. When commitment in a local church transcends the benefits we receive from it, it points to something deeper. The truth is, everyone will die, for it is appointed to man once to die. Our only preservation is in the final judgment. To be in Christ and to be in Him, we, He must be in you. And this only happens when we embrace what it means to submit to Him. To submit through pride, to submit through fear, to submit through wisdom, to submit through judgment, to submit. For in this, we are giving thanks to the Father. I spent a lot of time preparing for this sermon series looking at relationships. And so far in chapter 5, the truth is we're still in Paul's introduction because he hasn't even begun to get into the nitty-gritty of it. Instead, he's given, a found, given us a foundational framework that outlines what is present in every Christian relationship. In this framework, there's one thing that holds all of these together. It's not unique and it's not special. Instead, it is commitment. When I pray over these things and I look for application, here's what I'm reminded of. Families cannot disassociate from their family. It doesn't matter what somebody has done. Your mom is your mom. Your sister is your sister. Your brother, your brother. Regardless of what they've done, they are your family. Paul writes in Ephesians that you've been adopted into the family of God if you know Him as your Lord and Savior. Likewise, you cannot disassociate from your Christian family because of preference. Here's the greatest sin of the church in 2022. Is it 2022? Man. I do not think that we've run away from the authority of Scripture or that we've done anything uh, totally heinous. Rather, we have undermined what it means to be the church. To be committed to one another, submissive to one another, loving one another, out of reverence for Christ, being committed to serving the church and to helping her go. Paul says that the days are evil, so do not waste your day. Do not be foolish. This instruction is to understand what the hope is that we have inside of us to realize that there is a world that is living in the same trial and circumstance without the hope that we have. And that through our commitment to identify with a body of believers, we can bring that hope to them. We'll have a song of invitation and I'll invite you to respond to it in any way that you choose. Would you pray with us? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this morning, for worshiping with you, for giving us your word and your instruction. Lord, I pray that you would continue to convict our hearts of what it means to be your people, to commit to you, to identify with you, so that when the day of judgment comes, you will say that you have identified with us. God, I pray that you would continue to lead us in worshiping you in a way that you would be pleased. In Jesus' name I pray.